Hi, I'm Jay Goldman. And I'm Rahaf. And this is Banterful, where we get together virtually to talk about things that need more conversation. Today, we are going to spend some time talking about you and how you can get better at being yourself. Being a whole person as you enter in a relationship, that's something that I have been coming back to lately in my own readings and my own work over and over again, because I'm realizing that there is a significant toolkit of skills and strategies and approaches and work that I believe, my personal opinion, every person has to do repeatedly, ongoingly in their life. And unless you get into a period where at least for me, it's like I had to hit a certain type of rock bottom before I was like, this is not working, you know, unless it's like nobody tells you that this is the type of work that you need to be doing. And I started um, several years ago when uh, this is going to be really embarrassing, but I don't care. I'm going to tell you, I, I saw this like ad, this Google ad popped up and it said, said, are you angry all the time? It said, are you angry all the time? And for some reason, something about that ad, I was like, you know what? Yeah. Like a part of me did feel like I was angry all the time, not like raging, but it felt like a, a part of me was always like fire. Like I I never, I I never before then, now I have luckily, but before then I never felt like a period of of calm. When people talked about peace, I like never understood because a part of me, an inner part of me was always raging. And I found this man named Artie Wu. He's fantastic. I paid $25, which is probably the single greatest ROI on any investment I have ever made into my mental well-being. $25 for a seven-day audio class, which was just about like, and he taught about how everybody has a wound, how everybody's childhood, um, not to oversimplify, but how everybody's childhood, something happens to you that, that impacts your view of the world when you're really young and you're too young to know better, you internalize it and then it often creates all of these conflicts for you later on in life as different dynamics play out, your parents, your friends, your whatever it is. And going through that process, and it was so easy, like once he said it and he was like, here's how you recognize your inner scripts. Here's how you recognize how you're self-soothing or numbing or distracting or lashing out. Like once he gave you the, the tools to identify it and you identified it in your life and you identified your scripts and you started working towards them, it wasn't hard, right? It's not like it took a lot of time, but I was shocked that this wasn't taught in school. So I guess what I'd love to talk about today is from a resilience perspective as well, is this idea of a curriculum of you, of building this relationship with yourself and what that entails, because I've grown to believe that it's almost like car maintenance, that like every three to five years, every five years, I think you should do, generally I do this on my birthday, you just stop and you just say, okay, like, what do I want to carry forward into the next five years and what has like served its purpose and that I can let go? And we need to do that more. Yeah, you have a great list. Uh, I think we've talked about it on the show before, but you have this great list of adulting, the things that you do once a year to to like compress all the adulting into a brief period so it's easier to handle. 
and it's a great <laughs> list. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, and it's like all the things that you really should do on an annual basis, like check up on your life insurance policy and what are all the things you subscribe to throughout the year that you didn't realize you're paying for monthly and you know, all of those <laughs> things. And I think those are very practical things. It is a, a great list to just to go through on an annual basis. But I think it's also, there's a, this sort of personal side to it that's not covered necessarily on that list. Uh, the province here in Canada where I'm based and where Rahaf was born, or what not born, but was raised in Ontario, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just put out a new math curriculum. And it actually has personal budgeting as one of the items that they're now going to teach in school. And I think it's fantastic because most people get to a point in their lives where they suddenly become responsible for their finances and they actually have no idea how to do it. Nobody ever sat them down and said, here's how to just maintain a simple budget in a spreadsheet. So I think it's great that they're going to start to teach that in school. There's lots of things that are practical life skills that aren't taught in school. And I think there was almost an um, an antiquated, certainly now looking back, view that these were just things you should figure out on your own. They're just part of mm-hmm. life. You should know how to do them. And interpersonal relationships is one of those things. Conflict resolution when you have a problem with somebody else. I think about going through school myself a billion years ago when I went through uh, elementary school, but conflict resolution was fight it out on the playground and mm. go to the principal's office. That was, we were certainly never taught on, you know, how to actually resolve conflict between two people. And this idea of, I'll use the term mindfulness, broadly speaking, not necessarily only in a meditation context, but being aware of yourself being aware of your sort of metacognition, what's going on in your brain, the idea that, uh, and it's sort of central to a lot of mindfulness practices that you really can't control the thoughts that are going to come up in your own head. You can only be aware of them and you can react to them and you can, dis- and, and the piece you control is what your reaction to them is, I think is such mm. a powerful skill. And it's, and it is part of what you're talking about, about being a whole person. It's understanding those places where you have behaviors that are either learned behaviors from your parents or from other folks that you've picked up. My dad has a great expression, we are all victims of victims. And it really speaks to that lineage of your parents were also raised by fallible humans who were raised by fallible humans. And so we end up with this series of learned behaviors that get passed down through that line, which we may not even be aware of. We may not be aware of how destructive they can be individually. And, um, and, and so, yeah, this all kind of comes together in this question. The, the, the part that I had mentioned before we started recording this morning uh, about being a whole person was an introspective look at going into relationships, personal, you know, relationships, intimate relationships, I guess. Um, And that many people, I would even maybe go so far as to say most people go into those relationships with the belief that they are a half person and they are looking for their other half, their soulmate, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, They are looking to complete that human and, uh, it's a, a bit of a dangerous perspective, I think, because it does a whole bunch of things. One is it externalizes the need for you to feel complete to another person. So you're now dependent on that person to feel complete. For a lot of people, it is externalized self-validation. You don't value yourself unless somebody else values you. 
And that's why you feel complete because somebody else is showing you that love and saying, it's okay. You, you are a good person because I love you, not I'm a good person because I love myself. And mm. it also is a shield that protects us from having to deal with a lot of our own shit because we externalize dealing with that to somebody else. And so we say, really, what we're saying is, I love you. And now I'm making all of my problems your problems. And Mm. they're saying, I love you. And I'm making all of my problems your problems. So now dealing with that other person's issues is now your part of your job in that relationship. And so those two half people that go into this together, unless they are extremely lucky and their two halves happen to line up, they're not even making one complete person. And mm. if you are two whole people who can go into a relationship together, it's greater than the sum of those parts. You're at least mm. two people, if not more. And so that was kind of where what Rahav and I had just briefly talked about before we got on uh, the recording this today. And I think like it would be really interesting to get your idea because I, I, I found this subject has been so phenomenal. I've been reading a lot about it just because... Um, I read, okay, we're going to like, I'll geek out a bit about the books that I've read about this recently. But um, one of the things that I found really interesting was that I learned in some of the stuff that I've been reading that sometimes what you look for in a partner is something that you should be giving yourself. So if you look at a partner to validate you, then it means that at some level, you are not validating your yourself in a way that you need. And if you're looking for someone to choose you and to say, you know, to put you first, it's like there, there's a, there is, this is just the theory, but like that, that there is a part of you that you didn't put yourself first. And so it's this idea of um, emotional self-reliance that we develop. But the funny thing is, and this is what I realized just like a couple of days ago, is that we don't really know ourselves at all because we make so many assumptions about who we are and what we want and what we like. And it's one of those things where um, I'll give you a really random example is that in the house that we just moved into, we have this garden and I have surprised myself with how much I liked gardening. And this is surprising because my entire life, I was like, I don't like gardening. I've just always been like, I don't like gardening. I don't like gardening. And then when I stopped because I do um, morning pages and and not regularly, but enough. I've been into this idea of like journaling and sort of introspection. I started asking myself, okay, how old was I? When was it that this belief was created that I don't like gardening? And I realized I was 13 years old. Okay. My mom had come home with some landscaping stuff and like wanted me to help her in the yard. And I didn't want to, I was 13. I wanted to do other stuff. I wanted to be on the internet. I wanted to go hang out with my friends, but because she like made me help her, that became like a chore in my mind. And I was like, "Ugh, I hate gardening. But that thought that happened at 13 had gone unquestioned for decades as just a fact. It was just like, oh, I just don't like gardening. And then I started thinking to myself, well, how many other statements have I made about who I am, what I like, what I believe, how I see the world? And I never stopped to think about who I was at the time that that belief was made. If I was a teenager, if I was younger, and if, if I've changed and if those views still hold. And that really shocked me because I spent all this time not taking advantage of something 
that I ended up really enjoying because 13 year old me just like was like, no, forever. And I just never questioned it. Yeah, I, I had a sort of similar experience around pineapple. I <laughs> just, I believed that, and I, I believed I didn't like pineapple. And mm. I don't know where it came from. It must have been when I was a kid, I tried a piece of pineapple, I didn't like it. And I kind of went through most of my life thinking I don't like pineapple. And then I mm. got to a sort of later point and somebody said to me, you really don't like pineapple? I mean, it's delicious. Just try a piece. So how oh, fine, I'll try a piece. And then I loved it. And so <laughs> I, think it's, I think you're absolutely right. We, we change so much through our lives and then we hold on to these beliefs. Some of them are, are even things like a lot of people believe they can't draw. Yes. And actually everybody can draw. That's the, the secret. But it's like anything else. It requires practice. You can't yeah. just pick up a pencil and suddenly be an incredible artist. I've been um, reading The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson, which is a great mm -hmm. book if you haven't read mm -hmm. it. And, uh, and he has a great little piece about this exact thing. He says, think about how many times as a, as a child, and we all went through this experience, you had to learn to walk. And when you were learning to walk, you fell down hundreds of times, but you never said, you know what? I don't think this walking thing's for me. <laughs> and then just gave up on walking. We all yeah. figured out how to walk. And at some point in our lives, we go from that willingness to fail and just keep trying things over and over to this sort of belief of, if I can't do this the first time I try it, it's not for me. And then that becomes an indoctrinated belief in your self-identity, which you carry for the rest of your life. You didn't like gardening because once you were challenged to try gardening and you didn't like it as a kid. And so now yeah. you'll, you know, you'll never like gardening. Um, but and it becomes really like water, you know? taste. Yeah, but it becomes like water. It's like you just make this assumption. It's like that statement as a 13-year-old entered my identity as a 13-year-old, but then it just like got into the OS. It's like that that setting was turned on and I never right. went back to like reassess any of those things. And once you start digging into that, you think and like, you know, and, and I would challenge for anybody listening to, to anytime you make a statement like I am, I can't, I'm not, I, you know, to really pay attention to that because I found similar things around being like athletic because um, when we were in middle school, they would give me, you know, you, they put us in gym class with like the boys and girls together. And, you know, it was just like puberty and mortifying. And I just thought, I am not into this whole <laughs> moving your body athleticism thing. There's like all sorts of things. And then oh, there's also things that people tell you sometimes in passing, oh, you're not you don't have a good voice or, oh, you can't do this or you're not a good writer or I don't like that story or something that somebody tells you in yeah. passing and you're so young that you don't understand that like nobody's opinion really matters and you internalize it and you say, I'm never going to sing again. I'm never going to write again. I'm never going to draw again. Absolutely. You never do. I have a, a very good friend who is actually a beautiful singer. She has a lovely voice. She's very talented. When she was younger, she had decided she wanted to get into singing more than just casually. She went to an audition and the person running the audition told her she had a terrible voice and that was it. That was the end of oh, her being a I singer. I hate that. I hate that. And, I hate that. you know, and you're at, at an early impressionable age where you believe, well, this person's a professional, they're running this audition and they just told me that I don't, so I must not. And that's the end of the dream. And that person could have been having a terrible day. Yeah. It could just be a mean person. They, you know, there's lots of reasons why they may have said that that weren't necessarily that you actually can't do this thing. 
in some people that provokes a different response in some people that provokes a, I'm going to show them. And Mm -hmm. because they said that I will dedicate the rest of my life to being a great singer or artist or whatever it is in other people. It just, as you said, it turns off that setting. Now they are not a singer. And that's also really interesting too, because I also feel that if the motivation for pursuing singing is I'm going to show you, there's also something sad about that because you're doing all of this work and doing all of this stuff, not for the joy of creating or your own talent or the happiness it brings you. Like it still goes down to you feeling like you have something to prove, which as a very smart coach I once worked with said, everybody, even though this wound happens in an infinite number of ways at the core of it everyone is trying to believe that they are as they are just like enough and worthy enough and deserving of love and acceptance and that's all anybody wants is just to be seen as enough for who they are and regardless of how that happens to you you know if you're out there being like i'm gonna i'm gonna show jay i'm gonna do all this it's like at the end of the day it's like i don't have anything to prove to anybody i should be doing it for myself but Yeah. Like what else, what other things, like I'm trying to think of really useful things that I've kind of come across that I thought was um, really helpful in getting to know yourself. I always think about that scene from Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts there. I don't know if you remember that movie. There's the whole plot. So, okay. Julia Roberts, one of the funny quirks about her character is that she is with multiple, she gets engaged to multiple men. And every time she gets engaged, their egg preferences, how they like their egg becomes her egg preferences. So with guy one, it's scrambled. With guys two, it's poached. And then there's this scene in the movie where she sits down and she orders eggs and she, and the guy's like, how do you like them? And she's like, I don't know. Bring me all of them because now (laughs) I'm going to find out what I like. So I think like, that's a really interesting, you know, I always think of that because I think like, I call it the Julia Roberts egg moment. I always think to myself, like, you know, am I sure that this is what I like? Am I sure that, you know, my opinions that I've had are still true? So you think about, think about, um, currency exchange. It's a, I know it's a, it seems like a weird sidetrack for a moment, but think about it this way, right? Yeah. You, you can't measure the value of a currency except as compared to other currencies. Mm. What is the value of a Canadian dollar? The value of a Canadian dollar is always expressed in U.S. dollars, because what yeah. is the value of a Canadian dollar aside from the fact that you can buy other currencies in it and what the exchange rate is? And so, in a way, how do we value ourselves? We value ourselves in comparison to other people, because what do you have as a metric to value yourself on? Otherwise, the truth is, you actually can value yourself on other things, but most people value themselves based on how they compare to other people, and. So you pick up these, these preferences. Eggs is one example. Music tends to be another one. You tend mm. to soak up the musical preferences of your friends, the people around you, your partner, whoever it is. And maybe at some point you actually realize, you know, I really don't like this music. I was only listening to it because I was in a relationship with somebody who loved it and we listened to it all the time. And mm. then you have to sort of figure out, okay, so what music do I actually like if it's not this? Or what movies do I like? Maybe you were in a relationship with somebody who loved horror movies and forced you to watch horror movies endlessly. And then you realize afterwards, I don't even like horror movies. I was just doing it because it was part of that relationship. So mm. that question of valuing yourself or figuring out what your preferences are and your values are independently of anybody else is actually a really 
difficult thing to do because you have to do a lot of introspection. You have to figure out what's important to me and what am I willing to suffer for and have pain about? Because in the end, there is always suffering and pain, which and I don't say that to be melodramatic or, you know, to be doom and gloom, but that is kind of the human condition. This goes back to Buddhism. Even there is always going to be suffering and there are always going to be problems. But when you have a choice about which ones you have to resolve or which suffering you have to go through, it's so much more enjoyable than when it feels like it's forced on you. People like Mm. to be part of change. They don't like change that happens to them. So if I have the choice of um, choosing what I, so uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I've undertaken in this quarantine period to get better at running. And so I've been running through this period. Thank you. Good for you. And, and I can actually see the impact that that's had both in terms of distance and in terms of speed. So I'll go out um, sometimes and I'll do a 5k as fast as I can. And then I'll go out and do the longest run that I can do. And every week I've been adding 2k to that longest run. And so I'm at 19k now. So this week will actually be a half marathon assuming I can get through it. Wow. Um, but I've also been getting my 5k time really fast. So my, I just did a 5k last night. It was my fastest 5k I've ever done. 2633 was the total for 5k. So about 5816 uh, kilometer, I think. The thing about that is I choose to do that activity. And because I choose it, the suffering that comes with it in terms of being tired, in terms of sore muscles, in terms of all those things, I enjoy that because I've chosen to take this on and I've accepted the challenge of getting faster and being able to run longer. This would be a miserable experience if I was forced to do this instead. And so the difference between me choosing to do this and me being forced to do it makes all the difference to how that suffering registers for me. And so I think there's a piece to that of you're going to suffer no matter what there is always going to be pain in your life and there are always going to be problems that have to be solved. But some things you're going to respond to that situation very differently. You're going to be engaged in it. It's going to feel good to solve it. You're going to feel accomplishment for having worked through it. And in other cases, you're going to hate it and you're going to be angry about it and it's going to feel like work. But Mm. you do actually have a choice about a lot of those things and maybe not about whether they happen or not. None of us had a choice about COVID. It sucks for everybody but how you respond to it and how you make use of the time that you have is either a gift of being in quarantine and having time to do things, or it's a terrible hardship that you have to suffer through, I think is part of choosing which pieces of that suffering you're going to elect to take on or not. And I think that's really interesting because it also explains like the rise in this like repackaging of stoic literature and that like it's there's so many business books out right now like the new stoic stoic for business all of these things but i actually think it's the the same i blame extension. ryan holiday i mean ryan holiday he's just like built a whole thing about it and it's so interesting <laughs> and it's so interesting to see it because essentially it is a way to manage your suffering and what's funny is i actually came at the same i think i wanted to go to this to get to the same goal but i went through it from the much more you know emotional side which is i I reread because I wasn't really ready for it the first time, like The Power of Now 
by Eckhart Tolle, which I thought I have it was so also funny. Reread it during this time, and also yeah, wasn't I mean, ready I just, for it the first time. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for it the first. I just the first time it just like totally went over my head. But I remember the part, and I was just reading some of it yesterday because sometimes I feel like it's one of those books you can only really read two pages at a time and just really think about it, and you can't mm-hmm. go too fast. And he talks about overthinking, and he talks about suffering, and then he says, and this is like. I thought I found this for myself so true. We cause a lot of our own suffering and we cause a lot of our own suffering either because we're replaying the past, which is like something that we can't control. We can't change. It's the past. And we're reliving all of these traumas, reliving all of these emotions, but our mind is in the past or we're worrying about the future and we're worrying about something that hasn't happened yet. We're scared of things that haven't happened yet. And so he's like, we're constantly in this like time travel where all of a sudden it's like, if you're actually in the present moment and you're not tied to the past and you're not, you're not distracted by the future, then your suffering by nature, just like by definition decreases because suddenly you're just like here and it doesn't matter what happened yesterday and it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what's going to happen tomorrow. And I thought that was so interesting because like how many of us have replayed arguments in our head, you know, weeks, months, years after they're done. How many of us during COVID have spent, um, you know, time worrying about what the future is going to look like? Like I've worked myself up into such an anxiety spiral at like different points during this pandemic, but in hindsight, like for nothing, for, for, it was useless. I basically tortured myself for no reason. And that was really um, a wake up call for me because we're also taught as a productive culture to make plans and to assess and to move. And we're almost told that stillness is bad. And that if you're not moving forward towards your goal, then you are like not doing you're you're, you're not as intent or as committed to your success. And this forced pause, I think has been really good to force us to actually be in a moment, even if that moment might be a bit uncomfortable, because I believe that so many of us are overworked that we use overwork and productivity and days full of activities and back-to-back calls. I think we use that as a coping mechanism to not work on some of these deeper issues that are making us suffer. You should write a book about this. (laughs) The power of now more. (laughs) Power of Um, more now. Well, you you did talk about some of this in Hustle and Float too, about the, the sort of culture of overwork and the belief that that's the only way forward and that it will make you better and the danger of, um, I know, I, uh, I don't think this is a public video, but Rahaf came to speak at, uh, at the company that I work for and I had the, the chance to interview her about Hustle and Float. And, um, and we were talking about some, uh, we'd structured the interview around certain sort of expressions or quotes and kind of her reaction to them. And one of them was the, um, Beyonce, what is it about Beyonce also only has 24 hours in a day or something like that? I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That's but a, uh, you have you have the same amount, you have the same number of hours in a day as Beyonce. Right. And look at everything she's accomplished. What's wrong with you? What's your problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's funny is that that work, so like I started Hustle and Float looking at work behaviors and I ended up learning so much. There's this really great book by, I believe, I believe his name is Bruce Lipton. It's called The Biology of Beliefs. I just finished reading a book now called The Body Keeps the Score about trauma. And the more I learn about belief systems and how we as individuals structure the way we see the world, how much power we have in deciding how we see the world, what you were talking about earlier about perspective, like that's what we should be taught in school. It's not not even like we should be taught that every thought that you have about 
your role in the world, your value, what you bring to the table, whether the world is good or bad, like all of those things, they get formed in an instant. And then once they're formed in the mind, they get cemented in the brain. And then you have the neuroplasticity and like the mirror neurons that are firing. And then you have the same neurons that are activating. And it's this fascinating bridge between brain and mind between, you know, and so I, this is the part that really intrigued me because once you start uncovering it, you realize that your subjective reality is a complete mirror of every single belief you have had up until that point. So what is wrong with your world, how you see what is wrong with the world, your relationships, your successes, your friendships, all are a reflection of every belief that you have about what the world is, good or bad. And in one hand, that's really scary. But on the other hand, I found this message to be quite empowering because if there's something that you're seeing that you're not liking, I believe it's a result of some belief or some thought or some opinion or someone else's opinion that you've internalized. And as soon as you start saying to yourself, like, I can rewrite the script or I can, you know, where did this come from? Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel angry about this? Why do I feel jealous about this? Why do I feel hurt by this? Once you really start going under, then suddenly you have accountability and you also are empowered to like make positive changes in your life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that being empowered to make changes, I think is scary for a lot of people mm. because a lot of those changes are connected to your self-identity. So it's like the, to come back to, the, to where we started with gardening, if you believe you're not a gardener, then you've sort of encapsulated that in your self-identity. And so mm. if people were to, to say to you, hey, you know, uh, I don't know, we're going to go to a garden show this weekend. Do you want to come? And you'd be like, eh, I'm not a gardener. It's part of who you are as a person, right? And so this is a, that's a pretty mundane example because flipping that switch in your settings that said, actually, you really like gardening, didn't cause you to fundamentally reassess your self-identity. But there are... Mo- or I'm, a home, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a homesteader now. So like... It's, it's whole, <laughs> growing all your own crops. You're, I really yeah. am. Like it's, it's happening. But no, you're right. It's like, what, so I guess what you're saying is what is a more painful one that if forced to confront it would be a lot, like would shake the foundation of the idea that you have about yourself? Yeah, like think saying? about... Think about uh, maybe you've had a time in your life where you were like mad at, well, you said you, you had that ad that you had seen uh, about, are you always angry? But, you know, sometimes you feel like you're raging against everybody because they're all wrong and you're the one who's right. Mm -hmm. And then you realize afterwards, wait a minute, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) They're all right. And so there, there are those moments where your self-identity comes into play there because maybe you believed that you you know, I, th- I think that there are a lot of people who have a dream that they want to do in their life. Um, this is actually in um, the uh, Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck book. Um, people have a dream that they want to pursue in their life, but pursuing the dream causes them to have to reevaluate their self-identity. So Manson talks mm-hmm. about, for example, um, maybe you're an accountant and what you really want to do is be a playwright, but the idea of giving up accounting and becoming a playwright is like a major change to who you are as a person, to what you do professionally, to how people see you, to all of these things. And so you might just put that off forever because Mm. it's not so much that you're scared of the work of doing the writing. Maybe you're already writing, but the challenge to your self-identity of actually committing to this thing is scary. And also there's a piece of this sort of related, which is the, um, until you've started the thing, you can 
tell yourself reasons why you're not successful at it. But mm. once you've started the thing, you have to actually face the question of whether you're <coughs> successful at it. Excuse me. Mm. So, you know, it, being an unknown artist who's brilliant is much easier on the psyche than being a known artist who's not brilliant. And so that comes up in, in a lot of that sort of making change, right? It, it's scary to start the thing because starting the thing actually brings up the question of whether you're good at it or not and whether you can get good at it. And so that's in a lot of ways scarier than just, you know, being unknown at doing it yourself. Uh, and I don't think that's just about maybe being a playwright or something. I think it applies in lots of situations in life. People at, in their jobs often don't actually go for the promotion that they want because that is a question mark of, am I going to get the promotion or not? It's easier to think in your head that you're justified in deserving it, but never actually pursuing it. Yeah. I mean, wow. That is a lot. You're absolutely, that is a lot to unpack. You're absolutely right. And it's almost like, and I also think a part of it, especially with creative stuff today is like the side hustle, you know, aspect where every hobby it's like everyone's trying to monetize everything and like you can't just have a hobby it's like if you're a painter you have to have an etsy store and if you're a playwright you have to do be a playwright full-time and if you have to right and i found this in my own stuff because i really like to write fiction and i was not doing it exactly for all i felt very i felt very attacked by everything you were saying because that is exactly i was actually just talking to you Rob. Was, was, uh, the podcast for one this, no, was, but I, this was actually an intervention <laughs> it's like all my family comes on their own. Like, no. But if you, but you know, if, if you actually do the thing, then you have to face it. And I realized that, well, what, what am I facing? I'm facing the idea that if I release it, no one's going to buy it. And then I was like, well, why am I putting this on? Why am I putting this pressure on myself? Like what right. if for right now I write and I write just for me when I was a kid, I wrote tons of stories that I never let anybody read. I wrote for the joy of creating things for myself. And sometimes I wonder if with social media training us to constantly be performing for other people, if that has had an impact on our ability to create, because now it's like the idea of creating something and not sharing it, the idea of creating something just for you, I think has been sort of like left aside. And so many people feel like they have to be, and I see this a lot in the indie publishing writing community where you have these first time writers that are like, you know, they're like, I'm going to sell my first time novel. And every writer friend that I have have said to me, like they have written two, three that they, you know, had to kind of their training wheels. So I don't know. I think, I think it's this idea though, that like maybe the nihilistic version of me where it's like, I just don't think anything matters anymore in the sense, but like nothing matters in the sense that like, this is your life and everything's so random. So who cares? Like if you fail, who cares? And if you, if it's not, if it's not monetized, who cares? Because if this goes back to the earlier point we talked about, we should be doing it for the joy of doing it. Right. And I should write that story because I want to write that story. And who cares if it's terrible? Who cares if it's garbage? Who cares? Right. You know, which and is, then, which is yeah, sort of the yeah. power of now element of that, right? It, in yeah. the, the, the mantra from the book of this moment is perfect, which really resonated for me because as you said earlier, the, the past and the future don't actually exist. The only thing that exists is this exact moment right now. And mm. so it, how are you going to choose to spend this moment? 
And so for me, and, and we've been recording this podcast now for a, a few episodes, I don't know if anybody's ever going to really listen to it, but I enjoy having these conversations with you. So for me, that's a good enough reason for us to do this is just that we get to have these conversations. And that feels like a really good use of our time together is to connect and be able to have these conversations. If it turns out that we develop an audience around this, that's great. But if it never does, that's also great too. I don't have any uh, any objection to that. And I think you're absolutely right about the social media piece because I have a friend who decided that he wanted to paint as a hobby. It's something that he's been doing on the side. He started posting the pictures to in, uh, his paintings to Instagram. He does a painting every day. And so he posts them to Instagram. A lot of them are digital paintings, so it's easy to just post. Mm. I wonder if his painting is informed by the number of likes that the, the, the paintings Ooh. get, right? So you've created inadvertently or maybe advertently, but probably inadvertently, you've created a feedback loop. And the feedback loop says, oh, when I post paintings that have a lot of red in them, they get more likes than the paintings that have a lot of blue in them. I'm going to post, I'm going to do more paintings that have red in them. Or paintings of people get more likes than abstract landscapes. Okay, I should do more people. And I, and I wonder about that feedback loop. Uh, in a, I think in a lot of creative endeavors, um, uh, there's a lot of stories about people who are doing writing and they are publishing it online in rather than sort of sitting off on their own and writing a novel, they might publish a chapter at a time, get a whole bunch of feedback from an audience about it, and then, you know, then go and do the next chapter of it. Um, and, and I think that's interesting, but I also wonder whether it changes the, the sort of creative endeavor of it. So um, sites like Wattpad, where you can mm-hmm. write and publish and then write and publish. I think you get maybe a, a more likable outcome from it, but mm-hmm. I think you also have changed the actual creative endeavor. I guess it goes back to knowing yourself. And I guess then the question is, what are you doing or creating that's just for you? Like, what are you spending time on that's just for you? And if there's one book that I thought was really helpful for this was, is The Artist's Way. I don't know if you've you've read it or if if you've done it. Uh, Transformative. I thought it was really transformative. And the thing that was so funny about that is that one of the assignments that you have to do, if you haven't done this book, one of the assignments that you have to do is you have to take yourself on what she calls an artist's date, which is two hours where you go do something just for you that has no other purpose than to bring you joy and and then or to connect you to the part of yourself that was playful and creative and interesting with no pressure. And in the book, at the beginning, she was like, this is the part that people find the hardest. And I was like, what? What's she talking about? That's so fun. Two hours to play easy. It took me until the sixth week and an accountability buddy, a friend that was doing the program with me every week for them to be like, you are not doing this because we don't really do a lot of things that are just for us anymore. And so, you know, when I started working, I'm working on a story right now and I'm working on um, this novel and it's like, it's just for me. And I have made my piece and found it actually quite liberating that I'm not under any pressure to ever publish or share it, that it's okay to create something like it's okay to create something that isn't monetized, that isn't shared, that isn't disseminated, that isn't algorithmed. And where are there other areas in my life that I can carve out more of those spaces? Because there came a point where 
in the quarantine, uh, we were all, I, I know I was spending more time on my phone and it's like, I got one of those like uh, time spent where, you know, the, how many hours you spent and it was yeah. screen time. And it was something like 12 hours one week. And I was like, this is not how I want to spend my time. And Doom that was scrolling. a call. God, do, where, but where does that time go? And it goes into TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, like versus the ROI that I get from a conversation with you. It's like, here I was giving away my attention and my energy to things that weren't actually replenishing me or educating me or, or making right. me feel good. And so that was a really big wake up call as well. But like, yeah, like I would love for everybody to find one thing that they do. Like what's your, what would be your thing? Not to put you on the spot, but what would be your thing? That's like one thing that you're going to do just for you. Yeah, I, I, I well, I think running has running, turned, yeah. ha, has become that certainly through this quarantine. I'm a bit fearful of what happens if we're still um, under quarantine when winter comes and there's no more running to be done outside. Um, that'll be interesting. We'll see what happens. Uh, but I think running is is one of those things. It's a bit of a selfish pursuit. I mean, you, you're spending time by yourself. It, it's good thinking time when you get into long running. You know, but why um, is it to, a selfish pursuit? Why did you? Why is it a selfish pursuit? Um, not selfish in a bad way. Uh, self, selfish in a good way. It, 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 mm. It's time alone. It's um, not time spent with other. I mean, I guess you can run with other people, but I haven't been. When I do a long run, it takes me about two hours, and so that's two hours of just headspace time. Sometimes I listen to podcasts, and sometimes I don't. It's just good thinking time when I'm running. So I would say that's that is. It's not particularly a creative pursuit, though. It's just one foot in front of the other. Um, uh, I don't know. I would disagree. I think it's thinking time. Thinking is the thinking the, the time baseline yeah. Yeah. for all creativity. Anyway, I think it's incredible. Yeah, I was thinking more about. Uh, well, actually, no. I get. I get. I was thinking more about creative output, but I guess if you're if you're if you're spending the time thinking, then it is actually good creative output time. Um, yeah, in the past, I've I have uh, taken photos. Um, I, good, you know, amateur photography. Certainly mm. not anything professional, um, but but I've really enjoyed that. Um, and writing as well, um, fiction writing as well. Uh, and at times in my life, I've done a lot of it, and and at times I've done very little. But um, yeah. What is, I, I never knew that you were fiction. I knew, I mean, I knew you're very visual and very artistic and I, I've always known that about you, uh, but I never knew you did fiction. What kind of fiction? I didn't know that you did fiction either. Look at this. Look how, oh, look how great wow. this conversation was. We've learned all these wow. new things about each other. That's amazing. Um, yeah. I've, done, I, I've, I've written a lot of, I would say short stories, probably more than anything else. Um, I, for a while I had, uh, I have been a subscriber to this newsletter since, well, I don't know, it's probably been about 20 years, but it's called a word a day. You just get a word in your inbox every day. It's got the definition of the word. It's got a usage example. And uh, some days I know the words and some days I don't. I, it's just, you know, it's a nice little moment of like, oh, I didn't know that word. And mm. so what I was doing for a while was I would write a short story a day based on the word whatever the word was, whatever oh, wow. came to mind, it was just a creative prompt. Sometimes you just need something to turn the, the blank white page into, okay, what did this word just make me think of? And then, you know, go and write. And uh, mm. I did that for a while. It, it, it's, um, it's a time commitment if you're going to do it every day. Obviously requires, yeah. you, to, you know, to be able to set aside half an hour every day to be able to do it. And I would say for anybody who's listening, uh, if you want to get into doing something like this, don't sign yourself up for a major commitment like that because you'll inevitably fail at doing the thing. And then it will be that you failed at it for reasons other than 
the creative value of the exercise. You failed because you couldn't actually spend half an hour a day doing the thing or, you know, whatever, mm. you know, so don't set yourself up to fail by biting off something that you actually can't do. But, um, but yeah, and I really enjoyed it. I, I think I wrote, some of the stories were terrible, but, uh, but some of them were actually pretty good. And, and writing is a muscle. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, and it's also a muscle that gets practiced through reading. So the yes. more you read, the better you get at writing as well. So if that's something that you're interested in uh, pursuing, you should make time to read as well because it makes you a much better writer. I love that. And I think it's such a shame that so many people want to like self-improve, but like, I think we talked about this before, maybe in one of the other episodes, but they only read like nonfiction business books. It's like, I think that reading fiction is one of the best things you can do because it allows your brain on an emotional, instinctive level to experience different situations, different viewpoints, different, um, you know, just different pain points. And I read a really interesting, uh, when I was researching Hustle and Floats, so I don't remember the exact source, but I read something about how your brain, when you form an emotional attachment to a character in a book or in a movie or, you know, TV show, it actually mimics, like it's, your brain does not distinguish the fact that they're fictional versus like a real person. So you can right. fall in love with a character. You can, you know, be devastated by a death. You can grieve for them. You can't. And I think to myself, like, you know, the often when you people read business books, again, it's like talking to the brain versus talking to the mind, right? Like, yes, you read the business books and it's like, here's the concept and here's the learning. But when you go in fiction, it's like fiction talks to your heart and it talks to your soul and it talks to, you know, it tells you lessons and stories in a way that I think we internalize considering our species has been built on stories. And I think it's so sad that so many people are like, oh, I don't read. I've heard it so often. Well, I don't read fiction. I don't have time yeah. to read fiction. And it's just like, okay. It exercises so many parts of your brain that aren't just reading the fiction. And actually, I think quite differently than watching, uh, you know, sitting down and watching Netflix, we can absorb some amazing stories, but because the story is shown to you rather than your imagination having to fill in those gaps, it's quite a different experience than reading it. Um, we actually just started a book club at Sensei Labs and our first book that we are just uh, about to actually, I think it's this week, we're having our first conversation about it. It's called The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abby mm. Dare. It is a beautiful story. I highly recommend it. It's set in Nigeria. It's the story of a 14-year-old girl who is forced into marriage and uh, to a much older man. And then everything that happens after that, I won't say anything else because I don't want to ruin it. But it is a beautiful story. Also a first-time novelist who has been very successful with the book. Uh, and then um, I've also just read Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, which mm. is the follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. 35 years apart, I think. Um, and I think it was good that she she waited that long to write it because I think it would have been you know, writing a sequel right after the first one. They tend to be a bit derivative and not as good. And with all the time that's happened in between and, and all the weird stuff that's happened in the world that yeah. sort of felt a bit like The Handmaid's Tale, uh, I think she, she wrote a, a really solid follow-up to the first book. Um, I've always been an Atwood fan, both personally, I think she's amazing, but also yeah. as a writer. Um, so yeah, those are my, my two most recent fiction reads. I just finished, I think you would actually really like it. It's called Self-Care by uh, Lee Stein. It is a hilarious, like laugh out loud satire of like the startup scene. Uh, but that's also, it's very like, you know, woke millennials starting a woman-centric brand about wellness and healthcare. And it's about these two women that have started this uh, 
app called Ritual, but it's spelled like R-I-C-H-U-A-L. <laughs> and it's just like their experiences. And, you know, and, you know, because you're in the world a little bit, you know, tech world, it's like just a lot of tech speak. Oh, we're incentivizing the platform and, you know, yep. all the, the investor pitch decks and all those things. But it's really interesting because it actually... Um, it, it goes through the perspective of three different characters, two of the co-founders and their first employee, uh, and the differences that they have. And I, not only is it just so funny, it's very like, like very of the moment. It raises some really interesting points about, um, some of the things that we talked about, about taking care of yourself and taking time for yourself and this idea that everything has to be like, um, like algorithmic like everything is, is counted by an algorithm and any act of self-care uh, that's done on the app is done by sponsored content. And like, you know, it's just, it brings up a lot right. of issues about like the monetization behind some of these industries as well. So that would be my well, recommendation. I will check that out. It's very funny. All right. So let's sum up, wrap up maybe. Um, yeah. That was a, a very wide reaching conversation. We talked about lots of different things. So putting the show notes together is going to be fun. Okay, let me talk. I think if we're to summarize, I think it's we took a meandering path around the importance of why you should get to know yourself, a couple of examples as to how you can do that, uh, a challenge for you to examine any statements or thoughts about um, about things that you assume to be true about yourself. And then we think we, and I would love to explore this in a further episode, we really spend a lot of time talking about getting know yourself by investing time in yourself, whether it's a pursuit for yourself or creative endeavor and doing something like just for you without worrying about what the world is going to think about it without the likes or the algorithm. And then we brought it back to continuing to know yourself through not only reading and writing, but also through the discovery of fiction, which kind of expands your mind and imagination and heart in a multitude of different ways, which is also a way to get to know yourself. When a book touches you and changes you, that is a way for you to kind of see what, what it pinged inside of you. Um, yeah. What do you think? I think that's kind Excellent of like summary. The, the I think you wrapped Excellent. it all up. All right. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks, and we thank will you for listening. see you next time.